For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Pago Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two, main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity. When you look at a planet as one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet. It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious. We are one world, and that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time. Hello, welcome to We Martians. I'm Jake Robbins. NASA's Artemis program to return people to the surface of the moon is starting to get serious. The SLS rocket is in its final testing, the human landing system bids are rolling in, CLIPS providers are preparing for their first flights, and most importantly, there is just a tremendous eagerness in the space community to get to work on the moon. It's time to start planning for surface activities, and one of the main things astronauts will do when they take this next giant leap is, of course, science. But what science should they do? What builds on Apollo's legacies? What new questions have surfaced? How does technology improvement over the last 50 years impact this decision? NASA put these questions and more to a special team who recently released a report with their recommendations. Renee Weber is the chief scientist at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center and chaired the team that produced this report. And she joins us today to talk about the report and unpack some of the science that they think NASA can accomplish with the Artemis program. All right, so we're here today with Renee Weber from the Marshall Space Flight Center today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Uh, I'm great. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, this is a very timely interview because, um, you know, I, I saw an announcement that you were going to be kind of chairing this this committee to talk about Artemis science goals. And then uh, just this week, we had the press conference kind of talking about this report, which is uh, very cool to see. Now, before we unpack that, though, I'd love to learn a little bit about you. So maybe you could start with about a little bit about your background, your education, and how did you get into planetary science and your job at NASA? Sure. So um, my personal science background is in the field of seismology, um, and I actually did my PhD research looking at Apollo seismic data from the moon, um, which at the time in the in the late 60s and early 70s was really the first non-Earth seismic data set that, um, that ever existed. Uh, so um, about my education, I did my undergraduate degree in physics at UC Berkeley, and I did my graduate degree in geophysics at UC San Diego. And it was there at UC San Diego um, that I first was sort of given an opportunity to enter the world of planetary science. Um, I started as just sort of a, a straight seismology major. And in fact, my first semester, I worked with the ocean research group doing ocean bottom seismology, um, which is when you drop seismometers off the side of a ship and they sink down to the bottom of the ocean. Um, and then, you know, they take data for a few months, you come back later and um, drop the weights and they float back up. Um, and it turns out that that's kind of an interesting parallel to to lunar seismology, um, because in both cases, you're thinking about doing seismology in extreme environments. Um, so uh, around the time that I had completed, I think my first semester of graduate school, um, I was working with different advisors in the program. And one of my advisors said, hey, are you interested in, in looking at this seismic data from the moon? 
and, you know, being a, a space enthusiast myself and growing up watching Star Trek and Star Wars and being really into that kind of stuff, I thought that that sounded too cool to believe. <laughs> <laughs> and I dove right into that project. And that's, that's ultimately what ended up bringing me to NASA. Uh, so I worked on Apollo seismic data and did my PhD research looking at seismic data and seismic stress on the moon. Um, and then actually did um, two postdocs first with the seismometer team in France that ultimately went on to build the seismometer for the Mars InSight mission, which is currently operating on Mars today. So I worked with that team. And then after that, I worked with um, the U.S. Geological Survey in Flagstaff, Arizona at the Astrogeology Science Center, uh, where they actually make a lot of the planetary maps um, using imagery from all of NASA's planetary missions across the solar system. Uh, so I worked with that team for two years and then came to NASA um, to support the Constellation program, uh, which was the last time NASA as an agency was really focused on sending humans to the moon. And I worked with a, a team called the Lunar Mapping and Modeling Project, um, which still exists today, uh, although it is now called the, I think it's called Moon Trek. So if you go to moontrek.nasa.gov, you can look at some of the stuff that I did uh, when I first came to NASA. Hmm. I'm always um, so in awe of, of seismologists who go outside of Earth, you know, extraterrestrial seismologists, if you will, because you, you leave the most data-rich uh, planet to go to the quietest places and try and hear things. It's always, it seems like such a counterintuitive thing to do. <laughs> yeah, it really comes becomes an exercise in, in doing a lot with a little, um, you know, on Earth, we have the luxury of being able to access almost every part of it. And every place we can go, we want to put a seismometer because that global coverage really helps you learn the best about the structure of Earth and uh, becomes a challenge in planetary environments where, of course, uh, we don't have the luxury of total global surface access, yeah, at totally. least not yet. <laughs> All right. So uh, you were the chair of this uh, science definition team as part of the Artemis program at NASA. Um, can you just maybe give us an overview of what that is? What is this science definition team? What was its purpose? Uh, and then, you know, there was this report that came out this week. Maybe you can talk a bit about that, what that, what that report is and what its purpose was. Yeah, sure. So science definition teams are generally stood up um, when NASA is going to direct a mission and they want to um, really pin down what the science objectives of that mission should be. So the point is to pull together science experts who can sort of map out the current state of knowledge of a given field um, and identify what questions still remain to be answered. And so um, the Artemis III science definition team was just that, uh, where the mission itself is um, returning humans to the surface of the moon with the Artemis program. And um, the science in question is is everything in play that we learned from the Apollo missions, which really revolutionized our understanding of lunar science. Um, so it's, our activity was a little different from the standard science definition team in that, um, you know, we have the luxury of not only... Um, 50 years of continued science investigation since Apollo, but the humongous scientific community that the Apollo mission created. And so we weren't really um, starting from nothing. And in fact, there are many um, documents and strategic planning activities that have happened throughout the lunar science community since the Apollo era. And so the team was tasked with starting from those documents um, and putting together a prioritized list of science objectives, science goals, and science investigations that can address those outstanding science questions in the in lunar science. 
And, and really beyond lunar science, um, some of the reports that we pulled from, for example, um, so there's a, a group called League, the Lunar Exploration Analysis Group, um, which is sort of an advisory group to NASA. Um, and League periodically does these uh, strategic activities where they, they look across all science that could be enabled by a return to the moon. So obviously science of the moon um, is, is one of the largest areas, but science on the moon and from the moon um, are also areas that we can look. So that would mean, you know, using the moon as a platform for, for viewing other things in the solar system and in the universe or um, doing uh, human research program type experiments. So biology experiments or uh, physical science experiments that benefit from things like, uh, you know, microgravity or, or uh, partial gravity environments or, um, you know, no atmosphere environments or very cold environments, uh, that kind of thing. Extreme environment research, let's put it that way. I didn't know that League did that kind of thing, that they looked outside of just the planetary science. Yeah, so the so the Lunar Exploration Roadmap is, uh, was a, 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 an activity kind of similar to what the science definition team did um, over the period of, you know, the past 10 years and more. Um, and back in the constellation era, like I mentioned earlier, where where there was a, an activity leading up to the lunar exploration roadmap that was pretty um, wide open in terms of what we can what we could think about. It was anything that you can envision doing on the moon. Let's talk about that. And so um, you'll see in, in the report that we produced, um, we actually include all of that stuff. Now, of course, we can't prioritize all of it. Um, because the Lunar Exploration Roadmap was not intended to be something that is accomplished in a single mission, but rather lays the groundwork for a series of missions leading up to a sustained human presence, uh, which is exactly what the Artemis program also intends to do. And so the Artemis Science Definition Team report that we produced is a, a logical first step of science experiments that build towards this comprehensive portfolio of, of science investigations that we hope we can enable uh, in this in this Artemis generation. Okay, so it's like a big wish list then, kind of way to think of it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And so these these reports are usually put together by you know it's a team of people. It's not just you. Um, what kind of, of individuals serve on this uh, this team to put this report together? So our um, science definition team largely consisted of uh, NASA scientists from across the agency. So we had folks from multiple centers. Um, with science expertise spanning all of those areas that I discussed previously. Um, and then we also had several community consultants who are not NASA employees, um, but who represent big portions of the NASA community. So I already mentioned League. We had a community representative from League. Um, we also had a community representative from Survey which is NASA's uh, Solar System Exploration Research Virtual Institute, which brings in many academic partners from across the United States. And then we also had um, a representative from CAPTEM, which is the Sample Curation Committee. 
um, representing all of the academic teams across the nation who do research on Apollo samples. And we used our community consultants as a gateway to the broader scientific community, recognizing that there are people who have been thinking about Apollo, thinking about lunar science ever since Apollo, and who have an incredible wealth of information that we absolutely need. And so that was, um, uh, very, uh, community involvement was very much a part of of the team process. And we had a couple of public town halls. We solicited white papers from the community, um, which we spent several weeks reviewing and integrating. So it was a very um, group-oriented process. So I guess if, if any listeners are familiar with sort of how the uh, like league or MEPEG reports come together, even the decadal survey, it's kind of similar, right? Gather a bunch of information, build a consensus, and then sort of outline that in a report. Correct. So uh, you, you mentioned, you know, Apollo off the top, and I, I kind of want to set a little bit of context for this as well. Um, the Artemis mission to me seems like a really, uh, there's, there's an interesting tension with it because it is both very groundbreaking in that, you know, it's, it's going to be the first 21st century return to the moon for humans, um, but it's also something that we did 50 years ago. Um, and I, I, I'm very interested in that sort of tension. So maybe you can just start with uh, talking about what what baseline sort of um, lessons learned did you come off of Apollo from? You know, when you looked at those missions, what was really, really strong and you wanted to keep? And then what was maybe something we needed to improve upon? I think when you're looking at, at surface science, um, Apollo really worked well. Um, I mean, we use it as a foundation of knowledge for how surface exploration should be done. Um, I think an interesting difference is that in the Apollo era, uh, we were training test pilots to be scientists. And um, that's really different now. I think it, almost the opposite is true. You know, we have trained scientists, trained ge geologists, astronauts, um, who, who we train to be pilots. Um, so, of course, we learned uh, along the way through the shuttle program, through the ISS program, um, how to do that, how to have people who are payload specialists and scientists. Um, so we have the this really diverse Artemis astronaut, astronaut core, um, which was actually just announced yesterday, I think, mm -hmm. um, which is a, a really great team of people who are incredibly well qualified to, to carry out the types of investigations that we identified in the report. Um, going back to your question about, about what worked well, um, you know, we got a great set of samples um, from from each of the Apollo landing sites that have really revolutionized our understanding of the moon. Um, uh, I think what else? There were some things, some sort of enabling technologies that 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 were really good that we should definitely continue to think about. Thinking about things like um, having live TV coverage. Um, you know, even eventually from a camera that could be remotely controlled. Um, and that, in turn, fed this sort of science backroom process um, that helped us, not quite in real time, but, um, you know, kind of on the timeline that the astronauts were there, uh, formulate what, type, what types of science they should do next based on how the science that they did today went. Um, so I think that was something that really worked well. Um, thinking about what could be improved upon. I think one of the things we learned from Apollo is how crucial 
that surface time is. Yeah. Um, that, you know, time on the lunar surface is the most precious resource. Um, the Apollo crew spent a lot of time setting things up, um, picking things up, moving things around, fixing things, um, and not actually doing the science. So I think what we learned from that is um, things have to be really simple to set up, really simple to sort of transport, set up, and, and uh you know, set it and forget it type <laughs> instruments and tools, <laughs> you know, making sure that we, that the tools are, are easy to grasp and, and to um, take into consideration some of the limitations of things like, you know, the dexterity of the suits that they have and how easy it is for them to bend over if they drop something, things like that. Um, so those are the things, I think those are some things that, that we can improve upon. I know that the 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 report kind of outlines, you know, what isn't in scope, and you and you mentioned like, you know, we don't recommend particular instruments or or things like that, or or particular mission profiles per se, you know, spacecraft that kind of thing. But I'm kind of curious about, you know, between Apollo and now is is 50 years of of technical innovation, and um, so one of our listeners, Benjamin, was kind of asking like, what is, what is the, the 50 years of technology and 50 years of learning new things about lunar science due to the recommendations that you make in this report? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I mean, things have obviously changed dramatically in the past 50 years. Uh, the computer that you carry around in your pocket has more computing power than the Apollo flight computer. And if you think about, um, you know, the, the types of computers available to do scientific analysis. Um, so for example, if you think about the seismic data, um, that came down from the moon, something I'm very familiar with, which was actually one of the very first fully digital seismic data sets, if you can believe that. Interesting. Okay. Um, before that, uh, you may have seen pictures of old seismometers, which were little reels of paper with a little pen that wiggled and drew a line. <laughs> Right. So, so digitizing seismic data was something that was also just starting to happen in the Apollo era and a computer back then that you might use to look at seismic data would fill a whole room. <laughs> and, and, you know, now the entire Apollo seismic data set, it's like 13 gigabytes is nothing. Um, so, so there's a lot that, that has happened in the past 50 years that greatly improves things like analysis. Obviously, um, uh, you know, I mentioned before having a, a a grainy black and white television, live television feed of what the astronauts were doing on the moon at the time was was really cool, and everyone was glued to their TV to see that. And of course, nowadays we watch everything in super high resolution, <laughs> high def, you know, 10K TV with surround sound and all that. Um, and, and if you think about the application of of being able to do something like that from the surface of the moon, that would be incredible. Um, for, for science, um, you know, being able to have sort of real-time communication with your science back room, you know, rather than having to have everybody sleep on it and tell them what to do in the morning, they could be there almost in, you know, like virtual reality type situation, um, helping them hand in hand. That's something that is a possibility. Um, you know, um, some things haven't changed, right? Like scoops and rakes and a lot of the hand tools are almost exactly the same. Um, but, but other things are a lot different, um, when you think about like miniaturization of systems and how, you know, we now have handheld spectrometers and, you know, small LIDAR systems and 360 degree cameras and all this stuff. Um, you know, we have to be 
careful almost because we're limited in what we can bring with us. So we have to make sure that we're bringing things that are, if possible, multifunctional and and um, can sort of do multiple things. Um, but but as we're building towards a sustained lunar presence, I think the the technology advancements that we have had are going to allow us to do some some really mind blowing things. That's great. Um, and you you mentioned this as well that the the training program. So we they trained test pilots to be geologists during Apollo. Um, it was kind of a famous training program. I kind of love hearing stories about it. Um, but what did we take away from that? Like they did a lot of field work and stuff. Is that still all the the right way to do it? Like, do we need to call Jim Head and tell him to to do another round of this? Like, is that all working good or are there changes you'd want to make there? Um, yeah, I, I think the Apollo training program worked and is working. Um, you know, that that similar training is actually already part of of the crew training program. Um, the, the cohort of Artemis astronauts have already received some field training in lunar geology and presumably will receive a lot more going forward. Um, you know, getting them educated in geology and field geology and excited about, um, you know, why it's important that we get these samples. Um, we're doing that. So, so all we can do is, is improve on what Apollo did. I definitely don't think we need to reinvent the wheel there. Um, I think Jim has probably more than happy to re-engage and probably, <laughs> probably already is. <laughs> um, uh, let's see what else. Um, yeah. Yeah. Having, having this opportunity to train geologist astronauts um, in advanced lunar surface geology is, is, an incredible opportunity and uh, not just geologists. I think we even, we may even have some geophysics astronauts up there. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're going to, we're going <laughs> to answer the, uh, the age old Armageddon movie question is, is it easier to train astronauts to be geoscientists or geoscientists to be astronauts? <laughs> <laughs> More from Renee when we return. Martians and all the work I do as an independent content creator is entirely funded by listeners like you. Since I don't take ads, it means that once a year, I like to come to you with a fundraising campaign to help me keep doing the work that I do. This year, we've launched our Going Pro Phase 2 project, which means that until January 8th, you can get some extra perks by joining our Patreon or purchasing something from our shop. If you pledge $5 a month, you'll get a sticker pack with a handwritten postcard from me with a hand-drawn space picture of questionable quality, or pledge $15 or more per month and get a space mission patch too. All of this is in addition to our regular Patreon benefits, including bonus content, our Red Planet review podcast, access to the community discord, and the chance to submit questions for interviews like the one you're listening to today. You can also get free shipping in our shop if you buy two or more items, and we've got a great selection of shirts and other clothing, including some of our newer designs, which are now available in kids. I really appreciate your support and the support of everyone who's a part of this Patreon community so far. 2021 is going to be a big year for us. I have a lot of plans and all of it is possible because of you. So if you can spare a little, head over to wemartians.com support, and let's kick off next year with a bang. Um, so I want to kind of go into this next section here of, of uh, findings, and there's no real structure here other than I'm just going to pick through the findings for ones that I find interesting and ask you about them. 
Um, so this one here, and actually our listener with uh, the handle Saint Aardvark, which is a great handle, uh, he wanted to know, um, Artemis has this polar focus. You know, we hear a lot about going to the south pole of the moon versus somewhere else, maybe mid-latitude. Um, what sort of new science, oppor- science opportunities exist because we're going to these polar regions? That's a good question, too. Um, you know, the moon's resource potential is is vast and still largely unexplored. Um, we know from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter that um, there are these polar, uh, you know, enriched volatiles, and by that I mean water and water ice in the polar regions. And so from an exploration perspective, that's a high-priority place to go because if you're building towards a sustained human presence, um, you need to have the mat- you need to be able to find the materials you need to sustain that presence in situ, and water is a big one. Um, you know, obviously not only for, for drinking and creating air to breathe and growing plants and things like that, but also for creating fuel. Um, because the less you have to bring with you, um, the more you can bring to, to build up your infrastructure for sustained human presence. And being able to do, to, to, to leverage in situ resources to do that sustained human presence ultimately enables more science. So we're really looking at um, that circle of science enabling exploration and exploration enabling science, where we go to the moon um, to gather samples to help us better understand that resource potential, to guide the exploration strategies to use that resource to build the sustained human presence that lets us do more science. So it's a uh, it's that circle of enable enabling mutually enabling strategies that um, going to the poles is is going to let us do. Can I ask you this, and this is a, maybe a, a tangent question, but I see a lot of call it, I don't know if I want to call it public discourse, but you know, on the social media, especially there's, there's this penchant to sort of pit uh, a science objective against, you know, commercial resource extraction. But can you talk a little bit about how you brought that into your report and how those two things can actually coexist and work together? Sure. Um, yeah, the, the report is mostly focused on the science. So, you know, while there is resource potential, um, and I think we do point that out in the report, it's not what we focused on. Um, Of course, there are a lot of scientific reasons also to study uh, polar volatiles stemming from the actual origin of those volatiles. You know, how did they get there? Um, Why are they in this region on this moon and not in a similar region on another moon? Or... Um, how do they evolve over time? So, you know, on Mars, we look at questions like, was the past cold and dry or was it warm and wet? And what does that mean for habitability? Um, because again, with water being kind of the thing that you need to sustain human life, um, looking at the origin of water on different planetary environments helps you build a fuller picture to answer those types of questions. And so, um, so the, the primary motivation for looking at p- polar volatile deposits in the report is scientific. Um, there, there is this sort of secondary benefit, which is of interest to the science community for the reasons that I just discussed. So let's talk about samples. Um, so like you said, the Apollo samples were revolutionary, and we've actually done a whole episode on on. on Apollo samples and their their sort of gift to planetary science. Uh, our listener George wanted to know 
how do these, uh, how does like, how do we approach samples differently for Artemis? Like, is there a new technology? Is there a new way to do it? Or is the old Neil Armstrong shoveling dust into a box still the best kind of way to do this? Um, I think it's a little of both. Um, you know, depending on the, the reason that you're going to gather a given sample and how much of it and what's the best mechanism, um, you know, certain investigations require different samples. So, you know, there's a hand sample, which is just a rock that you pick up with your hand or, um, you know, a, a rake sample where you use a tool to select sort of a certain size distribution of, of pebbles from the regolith or um, a scoop sample where you just get everything um, or um, a drill sample for a core, for example, where you want to get a column of undisturbed regolith so that you can look at the layers. Um, those are all still... Um, I think very much valid and similar to Apollo. What might be different from Apollo is the ability to do some in situ assessment of samples before you gather them. So if you're in an environment where you're limited in how much mass you can bring back with you, you want to make sure that what you are bringing back is of highest scientific value. And since Apollo, we do have the, um, sort of explosion of, of these miniaturized handheld tools where um, instead of having to use your field geology skills or in addition to using your field geology skills to tell just from looking at a rock what it might be, um, there are actually scientific instruments that you can carry with you that you can point at the rock and they'll tell you what it is um, in terms of its chemical composition or in terms of its um, sort of exposure age or um, you know, uh, presence of volatiles. And that is a possibility for the type of instrument the Artemis crew could, could bring along to really help them pick the best samples to bring back. That's super cool. Um, I saw one, one recommendation about being able to seal samples, kind of like hermetically seal them. Is that something you looked at as well? Yeah. So if you want to make sure that you have the best chance of preserving whatever the, the sort of undisturbed volatile fraction is of, of a sample. So let's say that you think you've found a region where there might be surface ice or very near surface ice. You want to try to gather it in such a way as that is totally undisturbed and then seal it so that it doesn't, um, you know, leak away or vent any of its uh, you know, you don't want the ice to sublime away. If it's there, you want to be able to preserve it. Sure. Um, so, so sealing samples is, is something that is important, um, not only for preserving it the way that it was when you gathered it on the moon, but also to prevent it from being contaminated by anything that might be introduced once you get it back to earth. And there is a whole curation, um, pipeline set up, um, which it, you mentioned you've done a podcast already on the, uh, sort of sample analysis and I'm sure you heard a little bit about the curation process mm -hmm. but there's a whole receiving facility at the Johnson Space Center um, where they have um, very highly controlled environments where they keep the lunar samples once they come back to earth that's really exciting yeah and we've, we've talked a lot about the the Mars one as well you know looking ahead for Mars sample return and how crazy those those facilities have to be they're pretty intense and actually I even had there was one conversation um, with some people from the Caesar team that mission that didn't get selected but they were trying to get cryogenic samples back from 67p and that would have been a whole other thing as well it's quite the process mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah 
Uh, so you're a geophysicist. Um, what are some interesting opportunities in terms of seismology on the moon that you're excited about? Um, so I firmly believe that anything we send back to the moon should have a seismometer on it. Um, of course, uh, I had to sort of set those beliefs aside in my role on the SDT <laughs> uh, because we were representing all of science and not just one subfield. Um, but something that I think was a, an incredible gift from the Apollo program was these um, surface seismic experiments that they left behind um, to gather data after the astronauts left the surface. Um, so, so that would definitely be an opportunity for Artemis and, and not just seismology, but the entire suite of, of geophysics experiments. And um, in fact, one of, one of my other roles outside of this SDT is, is as a member of a mission team called Lunar Geophysical Network, which is looking at um, robotically deploying similar instruments to the ones that were deployed during the Apollo crewed missions. Um, you know, a seismometer, um, electromagnetic package, a heat flow package, a laser retroreflector, um, which were deployed by all of the Apollo experiments, um, which would be a good candidate, um, I think, for Artemis because of the fact that it's, you know, relatively low mass and it's completely passive, which means that it doesn't need any power or communication to work after the astronauts leave. Uh, whereas a, a geophysics experiment, um, to really maximize the benefit of the experiment, you want it to be long-lived, which then sort of opens up another route of discussion where you have to talk about, well, how are you going to provide power and communication? So you need a source of power and uh, your choices are essentially either, you know, solar power um, or to have something like Apollo, which was a, a radioisotope thermal generator. Um, so those are a lot of the kind of um, programmatic type decisions that were sort of outside the scope of the SDT, um, but which we do comment on in that if you want to do this type of experiment, these are the types of enabling capabilities that NASA will need to figure out how to send in order to enable. Yeah, I should. So I was going to ask about that because I, I did see that you were trying to, you know, you're trying to get away from choosing a, a mission architecture, which I actually they're still under bid. So I think it's ethically, you definitely can't uh, choose one. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But uh, like how much of that sort of, you know, concept of operations do you let sort of seep into your recommendations about, I don't know, I'm thinking about what sort of uh, mobility they should have on the surface. So you mentioned power. That'd be one thing. I don't know. Crew size would be something that maybe would come up. How much of that uh, impacts the report? So there's a little bit, um, actually from the human landing system uh, requirements, which are known, um, that we took into account in the report. So for example, we knew um, that there will be, you know, two crew that will do between two and four EVAs that will last between four and eight hours, um, that the sur entire surface mission will be 6.5 days, um, uh, that we knew about how much down mass we would have, about how much up mass we would have. Um, and, and then those are sort of the, the rough parameters of, of what we knew. So if you know, for example, that there are only 100 kilograms of down mass, then and you know that your sample collection containers weigh this much and your tools weigh this much, and you know the, the types of experiments that would enable the investigations recommended in this report weigh this much and a power supply weighs this much and you add it all up, it's, it's over the, it's over that budget. Right, right. And so those are the, those are the types of decisions, you know, while, while the report can make recommendations, um, the actual decisions about what 
will be done um, are sort of outside the scope of what the team did. Okay, that makes sense. So you just go off the the minimum requirements that are in the 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 bid, I guess, right? Yeah, and we and we tried to build a, a candidate program that could be reasonably executed with those assumptions, and then make a list of recommendations for enabling technologies that would allow us to do more if those technologies were in place. Stretch goals. Exactly. <laughs> So, uh, so what are the next steps then? So NASA has this report now. Uh, are you are done? You're disbanded? You move on with your life? Um, what What is the the sort of if I'm following Artemis surface science? Like, what do I look for next? So the next steps will be for uh, the agency to sort of split the recommendations up to the the directorates that will ultimately be able to either enact or further recommend actions um, to carry out the recommendations in the report, right? So HEO takes our report and they use that to help flesh out that concept of operations. And SMD takes our report and uses it to issue instrument calls to actually produce the experiments that will carry out the investigations that we envision. Uh, STMD would take the report and hopefully use it to um, you know, seed calls for power generation or for, um, you know, a, maybe a rover, um, you know, terrain vehicle for the crew to ride around in, which was one of the other things that we recommended. Um, ultimately, all of the things that were outside the scope of, of our team will have to be decided upon. And so those decision makers can take our report and go and act. Okay. Are you excited about the crew announcement yesterday? I that was a, a nice news item to follow the press conference this week. Yeah, um, I actually had no clue that that <laughs> announcement was coming, and it was funny because we got asked that question um, during the media piece that we did on Monday um, for this report. Um, somebody asked, you know, when are they going to announce the crew? And we just said, I don't know. <laughs> and then two days later, they announced the crew. So I thought that was kind of funny. Um, but I'm very excited. Um, you know, I, I I have had the pleasure of sort of indirect contact with many of those crew just through the people that, that I collaborate with at NASA. And I think um, we really couldn't have picked a better bunch. It's a great mix of, of, of new, you know, rookie crew and experienced flight astronauts and um, different uh, you know, diverse backgrounds, mm-hmm. um, diverse expertise areas. Uh, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it was a, a really good selection, I thought, as well. Um, very diverse. A uh, couple, two or three geologists, I think, which is pretty exciting for, for those mm-hmm. of us who are just clinging on to um, uh, Jack Schmidt for the last uh, 50 years. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, I thought it was it was a nice palette of, of people. It should be pretty good. Agree. Um, and then uh, this is, a, I'll get you to take off your, your science definition team chair hat and take off your chief scientist hat. And just put on your Renee Weber freelance planetary scientist hat. Uh, do you have a dream instrument or observation that you'd want uh, the Artemis mission to take to the moon? Well, I think I already said it. Just the seismometer. But <laughs> just the seismometer. But no, I mean, I think my dream would really be for all of it. I really look forward to that day when we have that sustained human presence and that, you know, sending things to the moon is just another thing we do, like dropping seismometers off the side of a boat. It's just that easy. Um, 
that 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 would be my real dream. Yeah, a whole bunch of seismometers, right? That's the answer. <laughs> right. <laughs> Globally distributed seismometers. <laughs> Perfect. Well, uh, Renee, if, if the listeners want to learn more about uh, your work, you're, I'll put the report in the show notes, obviously, but if they want to learn anything more about you or the work you're doing, where can they go on the internet to find you? Um, I come up pretty easy if you if you search for my name plus NASA. Um, I actually think I have a NASA webpage, but I don't remember the URL off the top of my head. Okay, we'll find it. Uh, great. Yeah, so this this has been awesome. Thank you so much for, for sharing this uh, report with us. It's really cool. It's There's something almost surreal about having a serious conversation about the, the next surface science you're going to do with people on the moon, and uh, I'm very excited about it. Yeah, I, I uh, frequently look at the moon and think to myself, it's right there. <laughs> it's, it would be so easy. It's so close. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm very much excited and looking forward to that day as well. Great. Well, thanks for hanging out with us today. Hey, thank you. That's it for this week, Martians. And that's a wrap on our episodes in 2020 and the fifth season of the podcast. Huge thanks to Renee for taking the time to share this report with us. We're all very excited about the potential science that we can do on the moon. And remember, if you can spare a little, now is just such a great time to join our Going Pro Phase 2 campaign at www.wemartians.com support with extra perks until January 8th. Thank you for your generosity. Have a happy holiday season, and we'll see you in 2021. We Martians is an independent, listener-funded podcast created by me, Jake Robbins, in Vancouver, British Columbia. You can reach us at info at wemartians.com or on Twitter at we underscore Martians. 